Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This morning we're looking again at 1 Corinthians and going to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And my title here is When the Church Fails to Be the Church, because that's what Paul is facing in Corinth, that those who are claiming to be wise and successful may also be the same people Paul is addressing in chapter 6. And of course, wisdom, I think this, this is a continuation of the problem he's already talked about, that wisdom in this world is often thought to be that which is successful. If it succeeds, right, it's good. Paul would say, no. If it enriches you, according to the wisdom of this world, it's good, right? If it gives you social status, if it gives you power, isn't success the self-evident fruit of wisdom? Isn't wealth a sign that God has favored you? And of course, this is the wisdom that Paul says stands over and against the wisdom of God, which according to this world is foolishness. There's an old Jewish joke uh, about a group of Jews in a synagogue publicly admitting, you know, they're nothing in the eyes of God. That first a rabbi stands up and says, Oh God, I know I am worthless. I am nothing. And after he is finished, a, a rich businessman stands up and says, he beats himself on the chest and says, Oh God, I am also worthless, obsessed with material wealth. I am nothing. And after this, uh, a poor, ordinary Jew also stands up and also proclaims, Oh God, I am nothing. And the rich businessman kicks the rabbi and whispers in his ear with scorn. He says, What insolence! Who is that guy who dares to claim that he is nothing too? Paul is attempting to change the value system of the world. But like the Jews, we are so often steeped in this value system that we cannot begin to discern it. Aren't the poor also the foolish? I was listening to the radio. I just caught a snippet. Aren't those who are weak and of low station? The guy on the radio said, well, aren't these simply people who are making poor choices in life? They are poor because they make bad choices. They're not clever. They're disadvantaged and hungry because, well, that's what they deserve. They don't know how to work the laws of the universe or the laws of the land, which by, you know, in this understanding really are kind of the same thing. Some are using the law in Corinth so as to work their advantage over other people. They're taking them to court so as to defraud them of their money, their property, their services. So I'm going to read this, just two verses, but we'll cover really the first 11 verses in Corinthians. But look first at 
verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Now notice a couple things here. Paul is not so much concerned that they're having these what he calls trivial or ordinary arguments about daily matters. What concerns him is that these people who are righteous, those who will be in fact entrusted with judging the world, are turning to the unrighteous for unjust judgment. In verses 4 to 6, so if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. And notice here Paul is doing exactly in, in uh, chapter 4. He said, now I don't want to shame you. But here he seems particularly incensed. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to brother. And the word brother here, here is important. I think he means brothers and sisters, but the idea is it's a family. Brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. And so to appeal to the law of the unrighteous for Paul is a sign that the values of right and wrong of the Corinthians are still being shaped by the world. They've not created a real counterculture. They've not developed an alternative sense of righteousness, an alternative wisdom to the world, an alternative valuation system. They're still dependent on the most basic values. They're dependent upon the state, on the governing authorities to regulate them. Now, if we isolate this verse, and I've, I've kind of done you a disservice because I've just read this verse, and now I'm saying, well, we shouldn't just read this verse. We should put it in the whole context. But if we just isolate it, I think we're going to miss Paul's point. In this chapter, Paul links three things. Three topics, which on the surface may appear to have little in common. First of all, as we've read, you know, six, really down to verse eight, going to the law or someone uh, taking someone to court, brother taking brother to court. Then 9 to 11, he's dealing with sexual immorality. And then to the end of the chapter, 12 to 20, he's dealing with freedom and discipline. I think he's not changing topics here. I think these three topics are interrelated. What they share is a warning against manipulating or taking advantage of fellow Christians. In Corinth, you know, there is this elite group that count themselves the wise. They have more standing uh, socially and economically. And this is, you know, he's going to deal with this in chapter 11. They're taking advantage. They're shaming the poor. We, we, Paul uses a term, they're grasping for what is not theirs. They're grasping sexually. In this chapter, they're apparently visiting prostitutes. Do you not know that your bodies, in verse 15, are members of Christ? 
Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? They're grasping financially. And the term here that Paul is using is to take something from someone by means of deception or trickery. They're defrauding people out of their money, people in the church, by taking them to court. They're not simply taking people to court to settle disputes, but Paul says they're using the law to defraud the weak or the disadvantaged. They're attempting to make money by taking advantage of their Christian brothers and sisters. He says you're being unjust, that is you're defrauding your brothers, you're turning to the unjust courts, and this is a sign of your own injustice. Anthony Thistleton, who, by the way, I meant Anthony Thistleton, he's a large British gentleman, the prototypical British scholar, and just a wonderful man, but he says about this verse that in civil courts, judges and even juries expected to receive some quid pro quo for a favorable uh, verdict. And so you, you know, you pay the judge, you bribe the judge, you bribe the various lawyers, even the prosecutors, you determine the outcome of the case. That was standard practice in civil court. Now he said in criminal cases actually Roman courts weren't so bad. And the instigators of these lawsuits were almost those, always those of higher social standing. They were the only ones that could afford to do this. Richard Hayes says the overwhelming majority of civil cases were brought by the wealthy and powerful against people of lesser status and means. So the judges, you know, they're of the privileged class, and they would ordinarily give preference, Hayes says, to the testimony of their social peers against the testimony of those of lower rank. And those of high standing had the funds to hire professional rhetoricians. The same word that Paul has used earlier. To argue their cases they could bribe the judges, and Hayes refers to a, a particular fictional work, but in the work Petronius, who is one of the characters, he says this about the courts. Of what avail are laws to be where money rules alone, and the poor suitor can never succeed? So a lawsuit is nothing more than a public auction. And the nightly juror who sits listening to the case approves with the record of his vote something bought. That is, you know, whoever paid the most money gets the positive outcome. So just as during the communion meals the wealthy were shaming the poor, they're also shaming them in business dealings. They're shaming them publicly in court. The same principle applies in both cases. The strong, the wealthy, are defrauding, they're shaming, they're in a better position to be servants, but instead they're lording it over other people. And Paul says, why not be wrong? Why not be defrauded? But in, on the contrary, he says, you wrong and defraud 
and you do this even to your brethren. And so the wealthy elites are manipulating the disadvantaged before the law. Going to court, I believe, is another instance of those who are powerful taking advantage of those without power, without money, without social station. In some way, the poor are being defrauded. Maybe they're being cheated out of their wages. Maybe they're being cheated in business or being dispossessed of their property. And the more powerful were using the courts to defraud, to cheat. And Paul is incensed that those who would claim the name of Christ would attempt to use the unrighteous law, that's what he calls it, the unjust, so as to defraud and take advantage of those who are actually dependent upon the righteous goodwill of Christians. He's trying to get them to form an alternative culture. So to use law so as to defraud a brother who is disadvantaged financially, socially. I believe Paul is really ticked in this chapter. And we may not get that. You know, he's really, he's almost as angry in chapter 6 as he is in chapter 5, right? Chapter 5, he says, turn the man over to Satan that is living with his stepmother. And I think this is the explanation of Paul's outrage that maybe we don't understand it so easily. Paul gives his own explanation. I think this is the explanation. You're wronging and defrauding each other, the brothers in the church. And it may be that like James, Paul has in mind, we think he has in mind passages from Leviticus in which the worst sin is when an employer takes advantage of his workers. James, like Jesus, gives the severest warning to those with power and position. Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. So were Christians to use this verse, and this is the way it often gets used, to enable them to defraud. In other words, they say, well, we know they won't go to court, so we can misuse them. We don't need to fear any kind of legal recourse, and so we can take advantage of them. This might cause one to wonder if these are precisely the ones Paul is warning do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He calls these people swindlers. You're swindling people out of money. You're in danger of missing the kingdom. So to use this verse as a loophole, you know, for Christian denominations, Christian churches, Christian companies, Christian schools, Christian employers, to defraud their fellow Christians or to break the laws of the land because they think, oh, our Christian brothers and sisters do not have recourse to the law. That is to do precisely, that is to cheat someone out of their wages and to twist scripture in a kind of sacrilegious move. Paul compares it to abusing people sexually. 
You know, and we have this problem also that people are abused by clergy because in the church they're afraid to turn them over to the law. That misses the whole spirit of this passage. This is not only to miss the, you know, it's, it's, it's really a, a twisting, a sacrilegious twisting. Paul counts these people, he calls them so-called Christians. He's saying they're fraudulent Christians. If you would cheat your brother, this is in his comparison, this is Paul's list. We'll read his list in a, in a minute. There's pedophiles, there's fornicators, and there's these swindlers. They're all in the same list. Paul says don't have anything to do with these so-called brothers. He's warning the defrauders, do not be deceived. This is verses 9 to 10. And then he gives the list. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, the covetous, the drunkards, revilers, swindlers. There's the word. He's saying these people are swindlers and he's comparing them to the other kinds of sins in the list. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And apparently those who would defraud the brethren are the swindlers, at least potentially so. And so Paul's point, you know, this is his point in chapter 5, chapter 6, he's dealing with discipline. He says, have nothing to do with such people, 5.11. By grasping for advantage over the others, you know, whether it's material advantage, sexual advantage, the danger is these elitist Corinthians, the so-called brothers, are jeopardizing their future reward. And so it's best, he says, to turn these exploiters, such as the man living with his father's wife, turn them over to Satan. Maybe they'll come to repentance. Maybe they won't come to repentance. But the point is they have no place in the family Paul is describing. He says, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person, covetous, an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. So he's just described the swindlers. And he said, if there is a swindler among you, disassociate yourselves. And... Clearly, you know, Paul is not suggesting that a Christian who was once tempted, you know, maybe into a single act of adultery, theft, verbal abuse, or exploitation. He's not saying that they remain forever excluded from the kingdom of God. But those who are practicing this, those who do this in a systematic way, those who are characterized by habitual drunkenness, habitual verbal abuse, or habitual ver uh, exploitation of others. This is Anthony Thistleton. He said maybe exploitation in business, in social relations, in employment of services. These are not isolated sins, but these are patterns. These are habits. Paul asserts it is those who consistently or repeatedly practice evil, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
1 John says a very similar thing, right? The person who abides in him, in Christ, does not practice sin. To practice sin, to continually defraud workers out of their wages, to consistently dispossess the old of income, these wrongdoers are the unrighteous who exploit others for their own gain. He says they will have no part in the kingdom. Now both Paul and John warn that to willfully practice evil and you have no inclination to repent, your Christian commitment is suspect. You're a so-called Christian. You're a fraudulent Christian. And I think it's the duty of the church to sort out the fraudulent ones. Exploiting others sexually, financially, in both instances, taking advantage of people to satisfy one's own desires. Can't we say at a minimum that it's a failure of love? And love, of course, is to characterize the Christian community. So while recourse to the law among the Christians in Corinth or even Christians today, Paul says, well, clearly the church has failed to be the church. And this failure, which was obvious to the Christian or to the Corinthians, and may, it may be less obvious to us, has to do primarily with the powerful misusing their power. So what I'm saying, this verse should in no way stand as an obstacle to those who have been sexually abused by clergy, those who have been exploited by so-called Christian institutions from seeking legal recourse. An institution which consistently breaks the law, abuses those under its care, and which does nothing to resolve the problem, I believe it falls under Romans 13. If you do what is evil, be afraid. For it, the government, does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Let me state it stronger. I think there is an obligation on the part of Christians not to allow such abuse to continue without censure. Even if the brothers are, you know, they're so-called brothers. The pedophiles, the swindlers, those who have habitually abused power, if it is within our realm to in some way censure them, I presume that like Paul, we are to use, you know, he did this, right? He used his citizenship to bring about, you know, remember he had the city officials in Acts 16 come and publicly escort them. On several occasions, he used his citizenship to his advantage and to the advantage of the church. I believe as Christians, we use our citizenship. We use the laws when necessary, to punish the evil, to bring the law to bear upon them. And we should probably have nothing to do with them, Paul says. I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he's a 
sexual pervert, if he's an idolater, if he's a drunkard, if he's a swindler. And so those who have consistently you know, defrauded people, taken their wages, taken advantage of them, dispossessed them, the swindlers, Paul compares them, you know, do you not know that they're unrighteous? They will not inherit. Do not be deceived. Now, what you might say, now wait a minute. Isn't, isn't Paul being a bit harsh here? Is someone who would abuse a brother financially, who would take advantage of their employees or those whom they have power over, is this individual of the same order as a pedophile, a fornicator, or an idolater? Don't we need to iron out Paul's harsh rhetoric here? Isn't it all right to abuse Christian brothers and sisters in a good cause? While we might not want to welcome the fornicators and the pedophiles, Aren't we willing to welcome and even laud those who are successful? So what if they wield their power to destroy careers and lives? I'm afraid this issue, the issue of consumerism, of valuing what is successful, what is what works, doing what is you know, necessary in the world's eyes, is precisely the issue that is killing the church today, rendering the church ineffective. Every week uh, I talk to friends and former students who are confused about where to go to church. Do you go to the typical church, you know, evangelical church or Christian church down the road maybe, where consumerism often reigns so that the preaching and teaching, music and worship, are geared to be generically pleasing. And the result is often insipid shallowness. Or do you go to the church that allows alternative sexuality of every brand? And as we go through chapter 6 of uh, Corinthians, and we haven't finished chapter 6, but we will next week. We see that pedophilia, homosexuality, meanness, arrogance, these aren't just the problems of the contemporary church. This is the problems that people, that the Corinthians are, are dealing with also. Certainly, turn them over to Satan, the one who's living with his mother, but I guess also the one who's a swindler. Don't eat with them. Don't fellowship with them. Don't accept their values, at least, as realistic and, and a necessity. So Paul has rejected the notion of wisdom of this world. That's a radical thing. And with it, he has rejected the valuation system of this world. The world of the Corinthians and our world. He's attempting something that would never enter the mind of most people. In fact, it's never been tried in the history of the world. He's trying to do it there in Corinth. He's consciously trying to change up the culture, the notion of wisdom, to convert their valuation system. 
He's changing up their religion, that's clear, but with it everything is changing. Their relationship to the state, the laws of the land, and the way in which they would manipulate their very notion of success. Christians should not use the law to abuse those who are already under their power. They should not use the law to deny fair treatment. And Paul's point is where this is happening, the church is failing to be the church. And again, you know, do not be, be deceived. But look at the end of the verse. This is my last point here. Now, let me just read this. Verses, verse 11. You know, he goes through the list. Such were, you know, some of you, covetous, drunkards, swindlers. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. So we've been washed, we've been sanctified, we've been justified. This is who we are. This is the bottom line of our values. And as he's going to say in the rest of the chapter, this frees us up from the wisdom and values of this world, the values of consumerism, the art of the deal that would take advantage of the disadvantage is no longer our value system. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.